0: Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas
1: Horrocks. And I'm Nick Quint, and today's episode is part two of our exploration of the concept of, quote, faith in Christianity. But first, we got more important things to talk about, like our beverages of choice today. So, Thomas, what are you sipping on?
0: Well, you know how I told you a couple of weeks ago, Nick, that in Indiana, you can't buy beer in grocery stores or liquor stores on Sunday. It's illegal. Uh, And once again, I did not plan well enough in advance. But... There's this loophole where if it's a brewery or a winery, you can go in and purchase beer or wine retail. So we have a lovely brewery here in Bloomington, Indiana called Upland. Uh, And so I went in and purchased, they had a sale on their free time lager. It's a light, crisp lager, uh, pretty malty, uh, really easy drinking, and it was like 15 beers for 15 bucks. So couldn't really beat that.
1: No, you can't. That actually sounds pretty decent. Uh, I'm drinking uh, Ballast Point's barrel-aged Victory at Sea. I bought this uh, last month, and I had some of it with my buddy Nick Stewart down in uh, down in Orange County. And we polished off two of these. Essentially it's an Imperial porter with coffee and vanilla flavors and it's aged in bourbon and rye barrels. And so if oh, you leave man, it at room temp. Really good. Oh it's dessert, baby. Like you take a sip and you get you get that bitter coffee, but then the vanilla kind of sweetness and like oh the creaminess kind of kicks in and basically you're drinking a like a mini chocolate cake. It's boozy but not like a burn boozy. It's 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 wonderful. So I was able to get a four pack at Total Wine, I think, for like thirteen bucks, and it's it's it packs a punch. I think it's around like twelve percent, so you can't drink more than one of them unless you're insane. But it's it's good. So cheers to you. This is this is what going to be a good episode. Well, cheers to you. I'm not going to lie, I am a little jealous with that. Well, you you have a better beer price though, so uh, I'll take a fifteen for fifteen almost any day of the week. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. All right, so uh, in this episode, we are introducing
0: a new segment, which we think is going to recur. Uh, the segment is called Really Bad Pastor Joke. Uh, so we are, we're going to read jokes to each other. We haven't read these in advance, and we're going to record our uh, actual reactions to these jokes. So I'm going to go ahead and go first. Um, so just to uh, uh, let the, the people know, you live in California, right? In the bougie part of California. So my guess is there are a lot of surfers
1: in California. Is that right? Yes, there are. They're mostly south of me, but that's the culture I grew up in. So yes, plenty of surfers. Okay, so, so you'll appreciate this joke, hopefully. Uh, what
0: do you call a surfer who has pistis or faith in Christ?
1: I can already tell this is going to hurt so much. What? Righteous, dude. Oh, I hate this song. All right. Well, for those who aren't still groaning, uh, here we go. I've r- got r- two r- right r- real quick.
0: Hold on. I, I'm just going to put this out there. As both a pastor and a dad and a connoisseur of puns, uh, for for people like me, for punsters, a groan is just as rewarding and fulfilling as laughter. So, just, I imagine I'm just, more so. I imagine yeah, more yes, so. Sometimes. So, no, I'll
1: give it to you. It, it a good groan is a good groan. I'll give you that one. These you probably won't get a groan. You'll probably get an eye roll. But I'll take what I can get. So I got I'll see if here. I can record that. <laughs> how do you call or what do you call a reformed theologian on Red Bull? I don't know. Reformed pub. No, no, seriously. You just call him a hyper-Calvinist. <laughs>
0: right. That's that's pretty good. I like
1: it. Yeah. All right. And this is the other one. This is one that might a few people might have to think about. All right. So how do you confuse a reformed Baptist who's also politically libertarian? How do you confuse a reformed Baptist that's
0: also politically libertarian?
1: Correct. I don't know. Ask him why the church is allowed to regulate worship, but it's bad for the government to do it. Bum, bum, bum. Da, 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 da. Ron yeah, Paul. that blah, first blah, blah, blah. one was way better. I think so. <laughs> I think this one's a little too insider.
0: Okay, okay. So that was uh, this episode's installment of Really Bad Pastor Joke. Those are so bad. (laughs) Those are bad. They're terrible. Um, But, you know, that's what we do, right? Um, So, Nick, before we uh, jump into the actual content for this episode, we've been getting some questions uh, because the tagline for our uh, podcast is, quote, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet. What's up with that?
1: well as in fact there is there's a quote from j.i packer that wonderful reform theologian who everyone should go read that ties in nicely with our topic today and shows us an example of the quote man-centered insult and here's his quote one of the unhealthiest features of protestant theology today is its preoccupation with faith faith that is viewed man-centeredly as a state of existential commitment inevitably this preoccupation diverts away or rather diverts thought away from the faith's object, even when this is clearly conceived. As too often in modern theology, it is not. And Packer, you can find that in the Reformed Doctrine of Justification, and one can also find this sort of rhetoric from Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. So anyone who's had any familiarity with the online form of this debate will kind of understand the arguments and kind of rhetorical sly of hand in there.
0: So, just to be clear, when we say that this is a, quote, man-centered podcast, end quote, we're not saying that this is just a podcast for men, right? We're, we're just sort of putting a positive spin on a sort
1: of traditional Calvinist insult, right? Exactly. I mean, it'd be really weird to have, I don't know how you exclude women from listening to free content and stuff like that, but as a matter of fact, we are, of course, very pro woman, supporters of women in ministry, and my wife and I have an entire podcast on this topic. My wife, Allison, it's called the Split Frame of Reference podcast, where we go through explicitly major texts concerning women in the New Testament and Old Testament and some not so major texts. So if anyone wants to know how we feel about that, we have some great content over on that other podcast.
0: And it's sort of also a play on words, isn't it? Where we're, you know, man-centered because we're focused on uh, Jesus, you know, who... Um, uh, you know. Yeah, so we, you know we're we're centered. Uh, we center our podcast on Jesus, like we talked about in the first episode. Um, but like you said, you know we're, we're both. Um, you know, when it comes to women in ministry, we're both egalitarian. We both support the uh, the ordination of women, the the service of women in the church. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I think we may do an episode on that sometime in the future to to show people how um, you know female leaders in the church really is not. Uh, prohibited by the Bible, how that's just um, rooted in some uh, bad theology, uh, bad interpretation of a couple of specific texts. Is that right?
1: And how necessary it is for women to be involved in the local church as leaders and ministers too. So.
0: Amen. All right. So before we move into the new content, let me just recap what we talked about last episode. Uh, One of the things that we talked about is when it comes to biblical interpretation, words and concepts need to be understood within their cultural context. Uh, Words that were used back in the first century uh, Jewish and Greco-Roman culture don't necessarily carry the same meaning that they carry today. Uh, And so one of the things that we looked at in the last episode was how um, the Greek word pistis and the Latin word fides, both of which are uh, usually translated faith uh, or belief, in the ancient world, they were actually less about belief as we normally use the word, um, you know, mental assent or, uh, uh, you know, mental agreement with propositional content. And they were more about relationality. They, they were more about trust, faithfulness, loyalty, and devotion. Um, of course, propositional belief is included in that, um, but it, it was more those relational words of faithfulness,
1: loyalty, devotion. Um, so what we you're saying math- real quick is it, it's not... It's not merely a philosophical kind of word is what you're basically getting at, right? Exactly. Exactly.
0: It's it's more than just mental activity, I think, is a way to put it. Um, Pistis uh, fides is more than just mental activity. Um, We looked at at, at Matthew Bates' book, uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and he makes a really good case that um, in, in lots of cases... Uh, pistis should be translated, uh, not as faith, um, but as allegiance. And he, um, he recounts this great story, which you can find, um, in, uh, the life of Flavius Josephus, where Josephus tells the story about how he caught a traitor who was trying to betray him, um, and Josephus says that when he when he caught this guy, he, quote, uh, offered to forgive him what he had done already if he would repent of it and be faithful, using the, the Greek word pistos there, be faithful to me hereafter. Um, and as you can tell, that has a lot of a connection with uh, what we see in the New Testament.
1: Right, and so in today's episode, we're going to start looking at some of the most pertinent biblical texts and, and see how these... If this understanding of pistis helps us make better sense of the new testament in its entirety of course we can't look at every single text that's what commentaries and monographs are for but we think that we've chosen kind of a fair represent representation of the verses in scripture that most people kind of use um, but before we do that we have two kind of major lexicons that are used and lexicons are essentially uh, a way of distilling uh, groups of words into a kind of a, a way of, uh, into certain definitions and, or glosses and categories. So you might have a hundred words for this and you kind of try to boil it down to three or four kind of basic lexemes or meanings. And so for example, Launida is a, is a major lexicon. And for the Pistis word group, uh, they, they gloss it as that which is completely believable, what can be fully believed, that which is worthy of belief, believable, evidence-proof. And so as Thomas pointed out with, uh, with uh, the idea of propositionalism, you can kind of see that idea working itself out in some sense throughout the Launida gloss. With uh, Liddell Scott Jones, a, it's, a, it's a much more ancient form of Greek, and so you've got a lot more meanings to it. So you have uh, glosses of good faith or trustworthiness or faithfulness or honesty, in a kind of a commercial setting, you have credit or trust. Uh, in the theological, you have, of course, faith and belief, which is opposed to sight and knowledge in some sense. Uh, assurance, pledge of good faith, warrant, guarantee. So these are very, it's not merely, as we've talked about, propositional. It's It has a relational connotation. It also can be used as, as a, a means of persuasion in terms of argumentation. So the two aren't necessarily excluded, but we often in the New Testament, at least in the church, we kind of emphasize uh, propositionalism over and against relationality and lifestyle orientation. And Let so, me jump in here real quick. Uh, yeah, go for it. Just to, this this isn't in our outline, so I'm kind of ad
0: libbing here. Um, but when we talk about lexicons, a lexicon isn't like an ancient dictionary. Lao Nida, what they they were not ancient Greeks who wrote a dictionary, right? Okay, so in other words, we look at these these lexicons, and these lexicons are done by bonded people who are looking back at the use of ancient words. Uh, and so sometimes they can be uh, helpful, and sometimes they might need correction,
1: right? Correct. And a lot of times, too, you also need to consider not what the glosses are, how they define the words but the the resources themselves where these words occur so if it occurs in aristotle or josephus or plato or philo of alexandria you need to look at each one individually because i mean you'll see even in in, in uh in b dag bauer denkart and Gingrich, kind of the standard new testament lexicon there's certain words that you look at the gloss in the new testament it doesn't really fit but doesn't mean it wouldn't fit elsewhere in a certain gloss but all this to say a, a lexicon is authoritative in the sense of of accumulation of occurrences of elect of a word but it, it is not always accurate or precise because it's a modern attempt at getting back to the ancient world. So, I mean, think about it. we're 2000 years removed from the time of the New Testament. There's going to be linguistic uh, goofiness that we have to deal with is I think what we're kind of trying to communicate here.
0: That's good. And I think maybe in a future episode, we might even talk about the best way to use uh, a lexicon in in studying scripture. Uh, But I just want to point out that along with that uh, last episode, I mentioned this book, Roman Faith and Christian Faith by Teresa Morgan. Uh, And she goes in, it's basically, it's a 500 page book examining the, it's basically a 500 page word study on just pistis slash fides in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Boy, that Um, just sounds like a
1: fun read. (laughs) Just 500 pages (laughs) on a single
0: word. (laughs) <laughs> so so, so uh, to our listeners, we read that stuff so you don't have to.
1: Yes. And so we don't uh, have to spend the money to buy the book. Good Lord. That's right, Some of these that's books. Right. All right. So uh, now that we've kind of brought it down a bit, uh, let's start with kind of the most famous verse of all time. It's John three sixteen, And I'll read from the NRSV. And that is, for God's holy word, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And every English translation we can kind of look at translates this phrase we're considering as whoever believes in him. It's a pistione. it's it's a participle, and so the one who pistises unto him. It's an act of faith, allegiance, loyalty, faithfulness, and that's containing kind of the idea of the present participle. It's something that is, that, has been act, that is being acted upon. And the research we've looked at tells us that believe is probably not the best translation of this word, so it'd probably be better to see it as whoever is faithful to him or whoever is loyal to him or whoever gives allegiance to him. And the question is, how does this fit with the rest of Jesus's message, Thomas?
0: And that's a really good question. Um, And I think as we're going to see, I think it actually fits really well. Um, I actually think that those translations actually fit with Jesus's overall message even better than just believing, just this sort of mental activity, the way we think of believing. I mean, just look at the immediate context, right? In, uh, in John 3.36, uh, just shortly after uh, this, these lines by Jesus, um, or John, uh, John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus to his followers. And he says, whoever believes in the Son... Whoever pistises in the sun has eternal life. Uh, whoever disobeys the sun will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. And so we see here uh, that disobedience is presented as the opposite of pistis slash faith. So uh, if 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 on one hand you have pistis, on the other hand you have disobedience, and these are presented as opposite, then that shows that there has to be some there has to be something more to pistis than just mental activity. Um, And so disobedience is presented as the opposite. We actually see this um, in several other places in Scripture as well. I mean, uh, notably in Hebrews chapters three and four, where uh, the opposite of faith is presented as not just unbelief, but also disobedience. Hmm. Uh, And and this is consistent with Jesus's entire message, right? Uh, In Luke chapter six, verse 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say, right? He emphasizes a lot, a lifestyle that's lived in participation with God's call. Uh, At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and what acts on them, right? Puts them Mm -hmm. into practice would be another translation will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Uh, in the Great Commission that we're also familiar with, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to believe right things about me. No, that's not what he says. He says teaching them to what? Obey everything that I've commanded you. So uh, this this idea of pistis meaning allegiance or loyalty or trust or faithfulness, more than just... Um, you know, mental activity, more than just belief, um, really seems to fit better with Jesus's overall message and, and mission
1: than just belief. And this is not a minor point. This is a major thing. Faith as trust in who Jesus is leads to action based on that trust. And so we have a couple of examples from the gospel. So Matthew 9, 2. Uh, quoting from the CEB, the Common English Bible. People brought to him, that is Jesus, a man who was paralyzed, lying on a cot. When Jesus saw their faith, their pistis, he said to the man who was paralyzed, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith. He didn't see their mental activity. He didn't see any sort of propositionalism. You know, he didn't see an equation that they gave to him. He saw the actions they took based on their belief or their trust in who he was and what he could do. And this suggests, too, and this is something that gets kind of downplayed, I think, in the Christian church. This suggests that the community of faith has an influence upon, upon Jesus and others, in this, in the, at least in this instance, and I assume for the, for the rest of, of us today. And their initiation of hospitality and kindness for the sake of their friend leads to the handicapped person being raised up, his sins destroyed, and his body restored. And so in this sense, you have faith precedes the healing process and showcases, I think, God's love, not only for the marginalized among us, but for those who seek and help those who cannot help themselves. So you have kind of a biblical faith as a communal faith that seeks to love all people without restriction and do the best you can for them. Kind of like a marriage, I think, in some sense, actually, you, you seek the best for, the, for your spouse.
0: That's right. You don't just believe things about your spouse, but you you have uh, trust and faithfulness and allegiance to your spouse, and that's demonstrated by your actions. Um, we have a similar record in Matthew chapter 15, uh, the story of the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus uh, asking for um, her daughter, who's been demon-possessed, to be healed. Uh, and, you know... Uh, when, when Jesus initially refuses uh, the text in, in verse 24, says that she prostrated herself before him and called him Lord. Um, and one of the things that I, I think that we don't necessarily recognize in our culture because we don't have kings, but this is exactly how people treat kings. Um, the, the the prostration, the, the term Lord, was, it was a term that was uh, used for Caesar and other people in authority. Um, and it was after... Seeing this, after Jesus sees her do these things, she prostrates herself before him and calls him Lord. Uh, Jesus sees these actions and he says to her, uh, "Woman, great is your faith. Woman, your your pistis is great." So, in other words, he you know he was able to understand uh, her actions and he called those actions great faith And so what we see again in Matthew 15 uh, is that faith or pistis is a recognition of who God is and what God does but not just that it's action based upon that recognition. So it's 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 the mental activity but it's it's more than that it's the action that follows.
1: And this tells us, too, something about just the character of Jesus, just, just in an incredible way, that a woman approached him without fear or respite kind of illustrates his own recognition of her character. That is, despite her limited social standing as a woman in the ancient world, no one else in the Gospels has this sort of faith this great faith, this great allegiance or loyalty or trust in who Jesus is. And this illustrates, I think, that Christian faithfulness is not kind of an aloof or gendered ideal. It's an equalized reality amongst God's people. That a woman exercises faithfulness despite her dire circumstances is a great reminder to all of us of the power of pistis, of faithfulness to what God has done, and our need to be an imitator of her. And so this this text, I think, carries a really powerful uh, practical reality. And as John Wesley says in his explanatory notes on the New Testament, Faith is the reliance on the power of and the goodness of God. And so the fact that she recognizes Jesus for who he is, oftentimes in the New Testament, it's or in the Gospels, it's women recognizing how wonderful and good Jesus is and who he really is. Hence the Messianic secret. You get this sense in which the power of faithfulness is the lived experience and the trust in who Jesus said he was. And it essentially means just taking Jesus at his word. And I think a lot of us kind of miss this this, this great idea of just living into who Jesus actually is. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and this whole idea that that pistis is more than just mental activity actually fits really well with uh, probably the most famous passage on faith in the Bible, which is Hebrews 11. You know, that that great hall of faith, as we like to call it in in Christianity. It talks about all those, um, you know, Old Testament saints and, and their acts of faith. Um, and actually, in the beginning of that chapter, uh, we get a, a biblical definition for faith, um, and this is how the writer of Hebrews describes it. He says, now faith, now pistis, is the um, assurance, confidence, foundation of things hoped for, uh, the conviction, assurance, or proof of things not seen. I'm sort of mixing some different translations together there, because I think it those words are... Um, uh, they're they're multivalent they've got several different meanings uh, but but sometimes this verse in, in Hebrews 11 1 um, sometimes it's used to support like blind faith right faith is the substance of things not seen you just got to take it on faith brother but but that's really not what this verse is is stating at all um, that that word in the first clause um, that's translated as assurance or confidence usually, it's the Greek word hypostasis, uh, hypostasis, And one of the meanings for hypostasis is foundation, that which underlies something else. And so if we understand faith as the foundation of things hoped for, it helps us make a lot of sense. Our, our hope is built sort of on this foundation of trust uh, towards God let me give you an example nick uh, if i lend you 20 bucks i hope to see it again um, and that hope is based on the trustworthiness or the faithfulness that you have already established and so that's what hebrews 11 is telling us that that our our hopes it are based not on this blind faith but on pre-existent uh, established trustworthiness and faithfulness on god's part um, and this is exactly what we see Uh, With the heroes of faith uh, in the Bible uh, that that we read about in Hebrews 11, verse 2 in Hebrews 11 says, Indeed, by faith, by pistis, our ancestors received approval. Well, if you read through the chapter, it's clear that the people who are mentioned didn't receive approval just for holding right beliefs about God, but for trusting him enough to follow and obey him even when they couldn't see the end result. But again, that faith wasn't blind faith. It was based on their previously established relationship with God that served as the the foundation for them hoping for something in the future. Um, and then verse 6, that famous verse 6, uh, without faith it's impossible to please God, um, for whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Uh, so so as, we, as we see here, propositional belief about God is important, right? We have to believe that, that God exists, that he's powerful, that he rewards us, but, but that propositional belief is just the beginning, it's not the entirety of biblical pistis or, or biblical faith.
1: And we also miss, too, I think, this really powerful image of hope, of anticipation, of, of expecting that God will act as God's character has been revealed in Christ. And I think that's something Hebrews and a lot of texts kind of hint at, this kind of anticipation of, of, of waiting for God to come back and to vindicate and rectify what he has said he's going to do. And so I think we've, got, we've done a really good job. Uh, establishing kind of both from ancient culture as well as from scripture that genuine pistis leads to concrete action but we've got this kind of proverbial elephant in the room that we haven't addressed so Thomas what is this elephant in the room that's kind of staring that's doing?
0: Yeah so so it, it's, it's a big elephant and it's sort of staring right at us um, and, and that elephant is that if, as we have argued, that action and obedience is inseparable from genuine pistis, uh, then what in the world does Paul mean when he says that we are justified by pistis
1: apart from works? Um, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, I got my nose kind of right in the middle of my beer, so why don't you tell me what the answer is while I enjoy this real quick? <laughs> Well,
0: there, there are several possible answers, um, but I, you know, I think the, the burden of proof is sort of on us here. Uh, Paul says that we're justified by pistis apart from works, and we're sort of arguing that, well, works are inherent to pistis. Uh, and so I think one of the ways that we can understand what's going on here um, is that w- when Paul speaks of works, works is often shorthand for works of Torah or works of the law. Referring specifically to those Jewish identity markers of circumcision, things, uh, Jewish identity markers, things like circumcision, things like kosher eating, um, that were specific to. Torah specific to Jewish identity. You want want to add to that a little bit? Yeah,
1: those things kind of are what marked or distinguished Jewish people from their ancient Near Eastern contemporaries, and also in their ancient uh, Roman Empire context, which they also thought, you know, they thought if you want to just do a a study on Roman views of Jews, it, it gets pretty grotesque and bizarre and racist pretty quickly. But a lot of it stemmed from their practices. And so, You get into this interesting texts, um, uh, specifically like say Galatians 2.16, and I'll quote again from the CEB because they're usually right. Uh, However, we know that a person isn't made righteous or justified or vindicated uh, by by the works of the law or works of law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Jesus or Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. And so whatever one can kind of say about works or works of law, it must be Christologically centered. And so vindication or justification and faithfulness are kind of uh, coalescing uh, together in this verse. And we see God and Christ kind of working together with humanity. And so we get the sense of the Christ faith we've already talked about. And so it's not, of course, something we can do, but I think you've got something really interesting, uh, especially in regards to forgiveness. So why don't you jump in with that, Thomas, because you've got some really interesting stuff here.
0: Yeah. So one of the things we want to make sure that we emphasize here is that, you know, when we're talking about the the inherent action associated with Pistis, uh, we, we still, obviously we, I, H- we agree that Paul is right, that justification does not come um, apart from pistis. Um, and what that means, what we understand is that God's offer of forgiveness is not something that we can earn on our own. Uh, this is what Paul means when he says that that justification doesn't come by our own works. Um, in other words, we, we understand, we, we believe, um, even though, you know, we're synergists, uh, we believe that humankind made a big mess, and it was a mess so big that we couldn't clean it up on own. Even if we tried really, really, really hard, um, there's nothing that we could do to re-earn God's favor to clean that up. And so so God sort of stepped in and he offered to rescue us as an act of grace. We believe that we are saved by grace. We want to make that very, very clear. Um, and, and we believe that, that the ability to even respond to God's offer is itself an act of grace. Uh, in the Wesleyan tradition, we call this common grace or provenient grace, and we'll probably talk about that in depth in a later episode, um, but that the, the 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 ability to even accept God's offer of forgiveness is an act of grace. Um, and then finally, the ability to live in a way that pleases God, the ability to carry out the actions that God requires, uh, we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do that, and we can't do that on our own. So that's why with all of these things, we can't boast. Um you know if we do boast we boast in the holy spirit who works in and among his people not among ourselves so even though we're arguing that pistis does require certain works those are not works that we can do on our own we can't respond on our own and so we agree with paul that that we are saved through pistis and that you know and and by grace not, that we can't do it on our own
1: right and we also forget too in some sense i think that we often assume the holy spirit doesn't work in the world and so i think in the in the Wesleyan holy tradition uh, and especially our pneumatology the Holy Spirit with regards to prevenient grace is always working in the world it's not as if God has left himself without a witness God is always active in God's world and so when we talk about the Holy Spirit being worked and empowered that goes hand-in-hand hand with what we view as prevenient grace that God is active God is calling God is pulling us towards rectific- rectification and reconciliation with God through Christ and so the nature of forgiveness and mercy as as we would say, is predicated entirely upon the triune God, not us. God is free to be merciful to whoever he, well, darn well pleases. And Christ, as the faithful son, exemplifies what pleases God for us, and we therefore imitate Christ. And so everything that we talk about regards to the, it's it's everything in Wesleyan tradition is predicated upon the Trinity and the blessed union of Father, Son, and Spirit, and our imitation of Christ by the power of the Spirit for the pleasure of God. And so I think that's where we're kind of getting at with this is, we don't want to demean works and separate them, but we also want to be sure to basically go where Paul goes, and Paul doesn't seem to have a problem here. It's vindication and rectification and human faithfulness are basically works of God that we participate in, and so that, hence the word synergist, as we've said before. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that's clear is if you read Paul in his entirety, as well as the other biblical writers, what they cannot mean is that we are saved by belief alone. Uh, so when they when they say that we're saved by pistis, as we've demonstrated, pistis doesn't mean mere belief. And and here's the thing that really. It, it sort of frustrates me sometimes when people make these arguments because every time a biblical writer talks about being saved by pistis apart from works, they almost always immediately uh, follow it up with the necessity and the importance of good works in those who have pistis. I bet For you example, don't have any examples to prove that. I bet you don't have any <laughs> examples to prove that. I've got a handful, but I'm going to just, I'm just going to give one. Um, uh, it, it, you know, justification by faith is—Galatians, uh, people always go to Galatians to prove justification by faith. Uh, and Paul states explicitly in Galatians that we're not saved by works, of the, by works of the law, but by pistis. But right after all that, right after that entire argument about the fact that we're justified by pistis, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, this is what Paul writes. He says, live by the spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But Paul writes, if you are led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law now the works of the flesh are obvious fornication impurity licentiousness idolatry sorcery enmities, strife jealousy anger quarrels dissensions, factions envy drunkenness carousing and things like these i am warning you paul says as i warned you before uh, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of god this is what paul writes about these kinds of works in other words Belief is not enough. People who just believe but have licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, all of these things, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God.
1: Yeah, and it does two things here, and I think this is really important. So when my our Reformed brothers and sisters complain about kind of the easy believism of, say, mainline or, you know, just big mega churches or whatever, they're on to something here. So it's not as if, you know, there's not a point to this, but the problem is, too, is the language of inheritance, the language of of whatever theological construct you want to kind of work with with Paul, every time he makes these big theological points, it always disseminates into ethics. It's always ethics. Being led by the Spirit is not a cause for sin, Rather, The calling of the Spirit is the highest ethical demand of all for all Christians. It's higher than the law of Moses or any other law. And that is something I think we, we kind of miss. We can kind of poo-poo the easy believism of so-called mainline churches or, you know, whatever you want to call them. But at the end of the day, these ethical demands are predicated upon theological uh, beliefs that Paul has, but it's not merely the theolog- it's not as if theology is enough. You need ethics. it's not to say ethics and theology are separated. For Paul, it's an entirely integrated enterprise, and I think that's something we really need to focus on. Exactly, and it's not as if the ethical component
0: is is an optional add-on. Uh, I mean, this is what, that's what Paul says. He says, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God and and so some people have tried some really strange theological gymnastics to say things like, well, inheriting the kingdom of God doesn't refer to salvation but to rewards. but that, that just that doesn't hold up. Uh, to exegesis. That doesn't hold up to good hermeneutics in in, in any way. Um, it's an argument that's based mostly on a misunderstanding of faith, or pistis, only as belief, instead of understanding it holistically as loyalty, faithfulness, allegiance, uh, embodied uh, faithfulness to God, uh,
1: and obedience. Yeah. I mean, justification or rectification or vindication, however you want to translator render dikaiosune that righteousness language whatever it is it's predicated upon one's life lived in faithful loyalty to the son of god by the power of the spirit for the glory of the father salvation or liberation from sin and death is therefore an ethical life and so and this is kind of a tangent but i feel it's worthy of being kind of mentioned that's why i kind of bristle when i hear some of my reformed brothers and sisters kind of make light of 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 that they're hungry for more than lessons on morality. Uh, I'm a big fan of Doc and Devo podcast and Joe Thorne's, you know, if I were a foreign Baptist, Joe Thorne would be my Pope and Jimmy Fowler would be, you know, Pope, you know, too. But I want to scream morality or ethics is central to the Christian life. And it was specifically central to the life of the son of God. And so we, as we pledge our faithful allegiance to Christ, we're not, we're basically saying Trump is not Lord. Piper is not Lord. Wesley is not Lord. The messianic son who loved us and gave himself for us is Lord. And that demands our ethical allegiance and the scriptures moral demands on us not inheriting the kingdom. That's political language are Christologically heightened. It's not, of course, to pick on, on the Jofo cause I love the Jofo, but it is to say, we've got a major pendulum swing here away from kind of the ethical nature of scripture. And I know they don't take it that way, but the language we need to use is, must be saturated in the ethics of scripture and in the, and in the, the morality lessons that scripture is trying to teach us. It's not as if scripture is, you know, silent about how we're supposed to live. So, and you had something about James, which I think is really important. So take over. Yeah. Well, you know, and that, that's the thing. I mean, James, which with,
0: you know, Luther famously referred to as that epistle of straw, right? Because he, he, says, some, he, he says some pretty <laughs> strong things about this idea that we can be justified by belief alone. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm going to read this sort of long section um, from uh, James chapter two verses 14 through 26, because it's, it's really, uh, it, it, it's central to what we're talking about here. James writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works, can faith save you? Question mark. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, James says, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. Uh, then James goes on. He says, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and shudder. <laughs> that's Do you the most like
1: to... brush off your shoulders kind of like <laughs> rhetoric slam right there. That's, that, that's my boy James. We got to give it to him on that. That is a biblical mic drop. <laughs> um, Basically, yeah. He, he yeah. dropped his, his quill and just walked away. He's like, He's like, I'm out, I'm out.
0: Hashtag I'm out. That's right. And then he goes on, he gets, he gets a little snippy here. He says, do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, uh, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, scripture was fulfilled and... Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And then James writes, he just, you know, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. James was not playing around, my friends. Um, you know, and some people here have argued um, that James is actually pushing against Paul here. He's arguing against what Paul writes in Romans. But as we've seen and as we're going to see, Paul himself actually talks about the necessity of good works and obedience.
1: Yeah, and you get this great text that a lot of commentaries I read on Romans, they kind of don't know what to do with Romans 2. It's where they know what to do with Romans 1 and Romans 3. Romans 2 is kind of just the the odd little stepchild that kind of gets left in the corner. And so I'm going to read this. This is the Common English Bible. Quote, You are storing up wrath for yourself because of your stubbornness and your heart that refuses to change. Notice the human element here, to change. God's just judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath. God will repay everyone based on their works. On the one hand, he will give eternal life to those who seek, I'm editing the CEB, who seek for glory, honor, and immortality based on their patient good work. But on the other hand, there will be wrath and anger for those who obey, obey, wickedness. So you have obey wickedness. It's kind of basically saying disobedience, obey wickedness instead of the truth, because they're acting out of selfishness and disobedience. There we go. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Greek, but there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And here's the kicker. Here's what Paul's trying to get at. This is a whole argument in Romans, as we'll see, of course, when we do our major later podcasts, God does not have favorites period. Mic drop. I mean, we need a mic drop for Paul. There you go. Like, there you go, Paul.
0: And so very clearly in Romans 2, Paul is stating that we will be judged by our conduct, by our actions, by doing good. And some people are going to, you know, when they when they exegete this, they say, oh, well, Paul is just, you know, he's setting up his argument in Romans 3. He doesn't actually he says, well, this is potentially true, but nobody lives up to this. Therefore, uh, God's work through Christ. But um, to, to combat that, I want to quote the uh, the very venerable. um Tom Wright, uh, from an article he wrote about this very very argument, he says, "'Ah, you say,' referring to Romans 2, but that is hypothetical, and Paul is about to declare it null and void, and to show a different way altogether. "'I respond that it is you, O exegete, whoever you are, saying such things that is making the word of God null and void through your tradition.'" Did you ever read 2 Corinthians 5, that we must all appear before the Messiah's judgment seat so we may each receive what is done in the body, good or bad? Who wrote that verse? Ed Sanders? Tom Wright? No, Paul. Or back in Romans, what about uh, chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, where each of us will give an account to God at his judgment seat? How do you fit that into your system? Unless you can, you have stopped reading Paul and have instead imposed your own scheme onto him. Uh, For Paul, uh, future justification will be in accordance with the life that has been lived. He does not say we will earn it. He does not say we will merit it. He says we will have been seeking for it by our patience in well-doing. And the whole of Romans 5 through 8, which generations of anxious exegetes have struggled to fit with the Protestant reading of chapter 3, is there to explain how it works how it works in theory, how it works in practice. The theory involves baptism and the spirit, neither of which feature that much in normal Protestant schemes of justification. Uh, The practice involves reckoning that if one is in the Messiah, one is dead to sin and alive to God. And then on that basis, and in the power of the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. If that is not happening, then according to the logic of Romans 8, 5 through 11, it must be questioned whether one really belongs to the Messiah at all. Yeah. And at that point, NT Wright dropped his <laughs> mic too. We just got we got a bunch of dropped mics all around. Yeah, here.
1: basically NT Wright always drops his mic, but he did so very with
0: gusto there. And so so jumping back to James, what we see here is, is that it, it appears that Uh, James is not contradicting Paul. We see that Paul is right along James. They're saying the same thing, but in different ways. What's happening in James is, is there were some people in the early Christian community who were already reducing pistis to mere propositional belief. Um, Perhaps they had understood Paul, just like some people today misunderstand Paul, and they take his words out of context uh, without reading to the end of his letters uh, and getting to those ethical sections at the end of every one of his letters. Um, But the the point James is making is that if mere agreement with propositional truth was enough to save, then even the demons would be saved, uh, because they have right to theology. It's not only right theology that saves. James here is using pistis to mean propositional belief as a way to illustrate the silliness of his opponent's idea. What he means is true pistis is more than just mental activity. It's embodied loyalty, faithfulness, and allegiance. He says our lives belong to God, not to mere propositionalism that excludes the ethical demands of scripture as
1: if they're optional add-ons.
0: <sighs> Sorry, I it's Sunday. Yeah. I, I'm preaching. Boom.
1: Yeah, no, (laughs) preaching every day is a good thing, so preach.
0: So anyway, just to recap uh, where where we've been, in in our last episode, we, we looked at how in the ancient world Uh, pistis and fides meant much more than just propositional belief, uh, but instead they were words that described uh, relationship—trust, faithfulness, loyalty, allegiance. And then in this episode, we applied that information to the biblical text, and we saw how it gives us a much more coherent, holistic understanding of what the biblical writers actually meant by pistis. They meant embodied loyalty, faithfulness, allegiance, obedience to Christ, which of course includes propositional belief, but is not limited to it. so, Nick, what are we going to talk about in
1: the next episode? In the next episode, we're going to ask, basically, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And that's going to not be, of course, limited to that one episode. This is going to be kind of a mini-series we're going to be going over. But uh, we've got something kind of new we wanted to do. And we're going to do a prayer request for us personally, uh, and then we'll get uh, more into that. But basically, I had a, an awesome meeting with Dr. Michael Bird from Ridley College down in Melbourne, Australia. And I applied to do a PhD in New Testament under his mentorship. And so uh, I'd, like, I'd love prayer for that if you guys are praying or sending up happy thoughts or smoke signals. Um, also, I have a potential job interview coming up. Or actually, it's not potential. It's been actualized. I'm having an interview for a pastoral, teaching pastoral job. Uh, in about two weeks. And so prayers that God's will be done and that I would remain faithful to God's call in my life. And Thomas, you've got the most important prayer request of all time, I imagine. It's the best prayer request. Uh, What is your prayer request? Well, uh,
0: as we're recording this, my wife is three days past her due date. We're expecting a little boy. Uh, but by Yay. the time you all are listening to this, uh, which will be about three weeks from the time we're recording it, we will have uh, a, by you know God willing, a newborn baby boy. Uh, with will his name be the- Nick? His name's got to be Nick. You got to <laughs> name him Nick. Uh, uh, we'll we'll see we'll see about that. Later. Okay. All right, all right. Um, but yeah, so so what? all of the all of the cuteness and the chaos that <laughs> that comes with that. <laughs> um so if if you would say prayers for um my wife, um my my 2-year-old daughter who this is going to rock her world as well, uh the new baby, baby boy, as well as I as we sort of adjust to um the new normal, that would be really great. Um and if you one of the things we want to do, if you have any prayer requests, if our listeners have any prayer requests, if there's anything that we can be joining with you in and supporting you in prayer, uh, hit up our email. Uh, synergists at Outlook.com S-I-N-N-E-R G-I-S-T-S at Outlook.com uh, And we'd love to, to be praying for you uh, and and see what God is doing in your life. So um, if you don't want to email, you know, send us, a, send us a tweet or a Facebook message, but let us know how we can be praying for you.
1: Yeah, as the cool kids say, our DMs are open. Uh, by the time this, this episode, episode the theory goes up feel free to check out our website Uh, we have a patreon set up for those of you who want to partner or participate in this podcast creation we have some fun tiers and goals set up so feel free to give as of course you are able libertarian freedom style of course Uh, if we get to our main goal there may be some epic rewards and events down the pipeline but of course god's providence Uh, follow us on twitter at nick quint q u i e n t and nick as it's usually pronounced uh at thomas l horrocks h-o-r-r-o-c-k-s if you don't mind theology snark and cat gifts and all that sort of stuff from me
0: all right so if if you like the alternative voice uh that we are providing
1: among the sort of uh ocean of reformed podcasts out there Did you know uh, there's p- a reformed podcast on gaming that's pretty cool like i thought that was pretty cool when i found out about that,
0: that- that is pretty cool, but it but it also shows how how widely outnumbered we are, um, and so if if you want to hear more of, of what we're doing, uh, we we just encourage you to please pray to, uh, uh, to consider giving to this uh, giving to this podcast. Uh, you know this the equipment, the hosting, all that it doesn't doesn't happen for free, um, and we would just love to have you partner with what we're doing here. We believe God's in it, um, and you know at, at some point we would totally be down to make this a sort of a full full time gig, but um, you know we. We need partners to to make that happen.
1: Yeah, and so you can check out our blog in the show notes. That'd be synergistpod.com. I'd say the HTTPS, but that's kind of annoying. Uh, Give us a five-star review on iTunes, uh, if honest five-star review, of course. And share this podcast with your Reformed brothers and sisters in the spirit of family, love, and kindness. After all, of course, God loves all of us. Uh, Be careful about sharing it in the Reformed Pub Facebook group, though. I hear their banhammer game is too strong. Uh, thank you for listening to the Synergist podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet, of course, by God's providence.